Vodka. 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 Vodka Hey everyone, it's Amber Love and you're listening to Vodka O'Clock. What you're about to hear is a recording from what we called the Queercopia. It was uh, five of us getting together at the Bureau of General Services Queer Division to read uh, all different kinds of material for uh, anybody who was willing to attend. And I have to say it was an amazing experience. The room was packed, standing room only. It was a beautiful brand new space. So if, uh, if you're in New York City and looking for any services, uh, I suggest you, you find them on West 13th Street because it's a really beautiful space and they have all kinds of books. And, you know, I'm sure Greg and Donnie over there at the Bureau can help you answer any questions if maybe you're new to New York and you need to network for any other LGBT concerns that you have. Um, It was really interesting because uh, I was reading an excerpt from a short story that I'm still working on, so it's not even finished yet. And I was invited there by Jenny Wood, who's become a great friend. Um, If you read the blog regularly at amberunmasked.com, you'll see that I reviewed her book, A Boy Like Me, and she was reading a scene from that. And other people read comics uh, in very different ways. And so it was very cool because, um, uh, let me go cover who the speakers were besides Jenny and myself. There was Maria Burnham, Dylan Edwards, and Jeff Krell. And uh, it was just great to see how different people were and the different kinds of ways that they not only write, but how they present. Uh, Maria was fantastic, where at the end of her regular reading, she actually read through a series of short open letters to famous people, and it was just fantastic. And then when Jeff was doing uh, his comic and presenting that, he actually had an assistant there who was very sweet, and she she was a good trooper about it. Uh, she would hold up these flashcards of the cartoon faces for whichever character was supposed to be speaking. So it was um, just a really great time. It lasted about, I guess, an, you know, an hour of speaking time, but we mingled before and after. And I, I sort of bolted out of there quickly. I didn't mean to you know, not socialize with everybody, but there was another event, of course, because it's during New York Comic Con, there's a million conflicting events. So I was trying to uh, quickly get back over to something else. And um, I actually was having a really terrible evening. And it, it turned out to a really terrible night as you know, far as just um, how I was handling all of the, the stress and anxiety of Comic Con. So I somehow pulled it together for an hour to get through this. And I just, you know, I just need to thank Greg and Donnie and Jenny and everybody for being so incredibly wonderful and gracious about it. And if you, you know, read the show notes, I'll go into more detail about everything. So uh, give it a listen. Please look up all of these authors. And, um, you know, if you have any questions, of course, I, I do think that the guys at the Bureau will be able to answer them. And you can always ask Jenny Wood, uh, and she can certainly point you in the right direction of, you know, anything they might have as far as uh, questions about writing or illustrating um, comics like this. So one of the things that I wanted to add real quickly is that <laughs> I hope the recording is okay because what happened is, is it's three different files that had to be 
edited together because I started to run out of disk space on my devices. So it's been quite a challenge putting this together as a as a production. So um, I, you know, really hope it, it works out well for you. And as always, you can feel free to send me your feedback. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Elizabeth Amber. My name is Greg Newton, and my partner Donnie Jokum and I are the Bureau. Um, <laughs> this, this little Bureau started uh, almost two years ago and on the Lower East Side, and we just moved into the center. Um, I believe this is event number four, four in the space, so we're uh, still counting on one hand. Um, we're very excited to be here at the center. It's, it feels really good. Uh, it's nice to be in a really supportive environment. And people don't complain that we're, where is Hester Street? I've never heard of it. We're on 13th Street. Everyone's heard of 13th Street. Uh, so thank you for coming out tonight. Um, and I just wanted to do one quick announcement about um, our upcoming events. We have a sign-up list for uh, our weekly emails right next to the bar. Um, every Monday I send out an email letting people know what's coming up. And we keep a very busy calendar. Um, so please sign up. Um, tomorrow we have Geo Black Peter's exhibition opening. You're getting a sneak preview of, I guess, about two-thirds of the show. Um, and then on Sunday we have the Bureau Book Club. We'll be discussing Bad Feminist by Roxanne Gay on Sunday. And more, 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 more. So please sign up. Um, please tell your friends about the Bureau and spread the word. We love keeping this place happy and full and active. Um, which brings us to tonight. I'm so glad that Jenny Wood wrote to me and said, hey, how about doing an event? And that's how pretty much all of our events start. Someone <laughs> approaches us and we say, yes, we've got the space, use it. Please use it and, and, and bring all types of queer culture here. Um, so I'm very glad to have you guys. Thanks for coming. And I'm going to turn it over to Jenny. us tonight. It's just, uh, it's so great to be in this uh, wonderful, warm, welcoming space. Thank you. And I want to thank all of you for coming. I know a lot of you were at New York Comic Con today. It's a very long day. And then it's also Friday night. There's a ton of other places you could be. So thank you for uh, coming here. And finally, I want to thank Dylan, Amber, Maria, and Jeff for reading with me tonight. Uh, it's an honor. You are all such wonderful writers, and it's just an honor to, to be reading with you. Um, I uh, am going to be reading tonight from my young adult novel, A Boy Like Me. It was published last month by 215 Inc. They are a comic publisher primarily, and they also publish my comic series, Flutter. I have both books available here, um, and I will leave some here with Donnie and Greg, so you can come in and, and look at them at any time. A Boy Like Me fe features a transgender, teenage, southern uh, boy protagonist, and uh, it's told from the first person, his point of view. The scene I'm going to be reading from is halfway through the novel, and he's out to dinner with his well-meaning friend, uh, best friend, Rebecca. And I think that's all you need to know for this scene. I knew something was up when Rebecca called on Saturday, wanting to meet during my dinner break. I assumed it was a reminder about My Fair Lady, her first time as the lead in a musical. The dining area of No Good was a small room with white candles on every table. Shelby and Luann had painted the bricks white. 
I guess it was to make the place more romantic or homey, but the white paint depressed me. Why mess up the natural brick color? Rebecca waited at a table for two by the front window. Of course she would choose to sit there. As soon as I settled, she pounced like a puppy. How are you? Her tone suggested aliens had just returned my body to planet Earth. I'm fine. We got in a new shipment of ants. I've been unloading those all day. No, I mean, Rebecca looked around, the fainting. She whispered the last word, not because she was shy, but because she was embarrassed for me. Great. Now I'd be known as the fainter. Tara had probably told her. Shelby grabbed two menus and brought us a pitcher of water with lemon slices. Rebecca studied me while Shelby recited the specials for the evening. I knew we're, I think we're going to need some time to decide, I said. When Shelby left, Rebecca reached across the table and put her hands on mine. Peyton, I'm worried about you. Why? I slid my hands out from under hers. She sat back in her chair and folded her arms in a huff. I thought we're still friends. We are. Well, friends usually tell friends when they have sex. <laughs> the place was crowded, but no one sat too close to us. The only good thing about being in the front window, Rebecca had sex? With Sammy? I waited for details. She waited too, her way of building suspense. Such a showman, she waved her arms like she wanted to, me to ask questions. Finally, she dropped her arms back down up to the table. Are you going to tell me about you and Tara or not? I glanced around the room, trying to figure out what Rebecca was talking about. Tell you what? She squatted me with the menu as Shelby returned. Rebecca ordered the chocolate chip pancakes because she could. Her favorite thing about no good was that breakfast was served any time. I ordered the meatloaf with mashed potatoes. When Shelby walked away, Rebecca took her red cloth napkin and unfolded it dramatically like a matador flapping his cape. Next, she inspe inspected every piece of silverware. Everything was spotless, but she kept staring, probably more at her reflection than anything on the knife. I surrendered. What? I'm trying to figure out which one of you is lying, she said. It's not easy. I unfolded my napkin and tried to pretend that we were not discussing the most important thing in the world. What did she say? Tara said you two had sex over a week ago on the couch in the recording studio, and you haven't called or texted or emailed her since. What? We'd had sex? <laughs> Shelby brought us a basket of yeast rolls right out of the oven. Thanks, I said to Shelby before stuffing half a roll in my mouth. I didn't like having this conversation, much less in public. Rebecca waited for me to say something, but all I could think about was how Tara thought we'd had sex and I hadn't called afterwards. Why did I have to call? She was the one who stormed out. I reached for the second roll, but Rebecca took the basket away. I sat on my hands to keep them still. Rebecca was my friend. I should be able to talk to her about anything. I leaned across the table. That wasn't sex. Sex is when a guy, you know, I made a half-ass attempt at a gesture with my hands, enters a girl. Rebecca surrendered the breadbasket. Where'd you get that idea from? There are lots of different ways to have sex. I have it with myself just about every night. <laughs> I held my hands to my ears. Rebecca pleasuring herself every night. Didn't she realize images like that? You're an East gay. He said coming out was difficult. And I know you've heard the nicknames. Rebecca nodded toward the kitchen at Shelby and Luann. She kept going, but my mind wanted to focus on what Tara had said about the night in the recording studio. That wasn't sex. We were just fooling around, like in the band storage room, only we'd gone a little further, but it wasn't sex. I'll be honest. 
I was a little freaked out at first, but I talked to my theater camp director and mom. Good Lord, who had Rebecca not talked to about me? I'm okay with it now. I mean, I don't really get it, and I'm kind of shocked that Tara's into it too. No offense. I just thought she liked boys as much as I did. Tara liked boys. She liked them a lot. Jason Webb, David Bowie, Ryan Gosling. <laughs> My director said you might deny it at first. He was in denial until he was almost 30. Can you imagine? Your whole life is like over at 30. <laughs> I tried to get an image in my head of what I'd look like at 30, but couldn't. Instead, an image of Uncle R.B. came to mind. Did everyone in Wiley think I was in denial? Did Tara think I was like her father? Rebecca waved for me to take another yeast roll, but my appetite had vanished. Instead, she took one herself. We sat in silence for a couple minutes. I'm not like that, I said again. Her head tilted, and those monster brown eyes of hers narrowed in a way I've never seen. Her mouth opened and closed. For the first time in the nine years I'd known her, Rebecca David didn't know what to say. She reached over and wiped my cheek. I hadn't even realized I was crying. I pulled back from her hand. Damn fireplace. I placed my napkin on the table. The smoke gets me every time I'm in here. My unused dishes and utensils would still need to be washed. I slid a $20 bill on the table, more than enough to cover my dinner. Wait, Peyton. I walked toward the door. Shelby saw me and exchanged a worried look with Luann as they greeted some friends. They probably thought I was in denial, too. Maybe they'd work with Rebecca and hatch a plan to save me. It'd be nice if just one person understood. But how could they when I didn't have a fucking clue? Thank you. Projections for this one, where I'm reading comics to you. Oh, hi, I'm Dylan. Dylan Edwards. Um, <clears throat> the first, I'm going to read two stories. They're both pretty short. The first one is from this book here called Queer. This just won the Ignatz Award for uh, Best Anthology at SPX last month. Uh, so I'm going to read my story out of there, which I totally bookmarked. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> but yes, yeah, so you can read along as I This is called The Transformers, a true story by Dylan Edwards. 1984, a Starscream's eye view of my elementary school playground. I want to be Ironhide. I'm Optimus Prime. I get to be Prowl. Prime, Ironhide, come quickly. The Decepticons have captured my sisters, Jazz and Blue Streak. Uh, sisters? We have to rescue them. I, uh, thought Jazz and Blue Streak were boys. Why do you think they're girls? Because they've got titties. <laughs> they would later introduce a few female bots. Patty Red Lips on a Robot, sure, why not? That's RC, by the way, one of the actual female robots from Transformers. But that, at that time, the Transformers universe was a total sausage fest. Or is it a piston fest? 
Desperate for female characters to play, Dale's imagination transforms the headlights on Prowl, Jazz, and Blue Streak into... Now come on! We must go find my sisters! Well, into headlights. I don't recall any of us mocking this kid for wanting to play a girl robot. I certainly wasn't in any position to judge, given that I was a little girl pretending to be a crotchety old man. Get off of my lawn, you dang kids! I just figured it was typical boy, a typical boy thing obsessing about boobs. This is our 1984 class photo where he's holding hands for reals with uh, one of his other friends. I say he. I don't know what, it, what pronouns this person would actually prefer. But anyway, I didn't credit it as the brave act of gender subversion it was. Did Dale ask for girl toys only to be denied by his parents, who insisted he play strictly with toys deemed gender appropriate? Or were the girl toys of the time lacking in adventure? Let's bake. Let's shop. So instead, he created strong warrior women to identify with. Let's kick Decepticon butt. I certainly found girl toys to be boring, but I was perfectly comfortable with all of my imaginary selves being male. Nevertheless, I did engage in a bit of gender reassignment of my toys. This folks is Laura. <laughs> I found her in a gift shop at a country bar where my dad's band was playing at their afternoon rehearsals. Instead of babysitting, we went and watched the band play. Uh, I was excited to find such a realistic stuffed horse, something of a rarity. I knew the bump indicated she was meant to be not a mare, but a stallion. But my brother's stuffed horse, Clarence, needed a bride. And like Dale, I had my own narratives for my toys, assigned gender be damned. As with many of those old toys... I don't know what became of Dale. Femi gay boy? Drag queen? Het crossdresser? Or perhaps a human transformer, and now Dale is Delilah. Whatever the case may be, to the strong-willed kid who forced the transformers to pass the Bechtel test, Autobots, roll out! I hope you did find your sisters. <laughs> second story I'm going to read is from my book Transposes, which is a non-fiction collection of uh, stories where I interviewed different uh, trans guys and adapted their stories to comics. So these are all, these are all real people's stories told to me, uh, and the one I'm going to read is Henry's chapter. Welcome to the Museum of Natural Henry. Feel free to look around, but please refrain from touching any of the exhibits. I grew up in a small town in New Hampshire with few other kids nearby, so mostly I played by myself or with my brother. Played by arranging the farmhouse pieces by size and then by species. <laughs> ha! And to think they called me mad at the university! The serum is working! <laughs> My best and only friend was the fundamentalist preacher's daughter. She taught me about prostitution by having brown-haired Ken pimp out Barbie and Midge to blonde Ken. <laughs> <laughs> True story. <laughs> A group of girls discovered us holding hands during recess one day. Lesbians! 
I had no idea what the word meant. Years later, when I was 12 or so, my parents bought me a copy of Changing Bodies, Changing Lives, an excellent book that defined the term. Oh, crap, it's true. <laughs> At the time, I endeavored not to think about it. But by the time my teenage years and hormones were in full swing, I was quite politicized and waiting to come out to all and sundry. So I went off to a women's college, determined to meet some real lesbians. Whereupon, I promptly fell in love with a man. Say <laughs> lovey. The implied power dynamics of dating an older man disturbed me. I want to take it slow. Okay, sure. Well then, good. I've made a list of gender and power neutral acts in which we may engage. <laughs> At first, kissing was a big deal for me. Then I went batshit and got into S&M and genderfuck. <laughs> my dear boyfriend had picked up on my bottomish tendencies and suggested I might like to try a bit of perviness a carefully codified, regulated system for giving up control and abandoning myself to pure sensuality, I was an anal retentive heaven. <laughs> Gender roleplay in the bedroom ripped the lid off a notion I'd harbored since I was 14, that I ought to be in a male body. <clears throat> I was trying so hard to control these aspects of myself that they unwound like a mainspring when I let them. Cue lots of crying in my friends' dorm rooms, awkwardness with my kind but hopelessly straight boyfriend, and reading the enormously helpful transgender warriors. I do best if I can put myself in historical context. <laughs> Initially, I was convinced I wanted to be a real man and nothing but. Eh? Excuse me a moment. Sex toys arranged by size, arranged by voltage. <laughs> this doesn't belong here. It should be filed with thrift store fines awaiting augmentation. <laughs> now, where was it? Ah, yes, masculinity and the pursuit thereof. Looking at my best male role model, my father, I determined that machismo isn't all it's cracked up to be. Dad was a gentle, slightly silly sort. He loved wild songbirds and could get them to eat out of his hands, causing him to look not unlike a statue of St. Francis in a wool coat. He was a brilliant woodworker and would carve delicate, lifelike sculptures of local birds. Uh, he did masterful carvings of other things as well. <laughs> Apparently, it had started life as a piece of firewood, the shape of which struck him as entertaining. I remember seeing him making this piece when I was far too young to understand what it was. I was reaching up to admire the smoothness of the finish. Nab. Would you mind not working on that thing while the kids are around? <laughs> I didn't see the phallus totem again until after I hit puberty. It was sequestered on a high shelf in my parents' bedroom, a doubly forbidden area. So, of course, I went right to it when left alone in the house. It was in use as a bookend, holding up, among other things, <laughs> a hardbound collection of articles from Screw that included just one article on gay sex. An article I read repeatedly until the book fell open naturally to that page. Let's just say this was not the last article on gay sex I was to enjoy. I'm far too faggy to be a real man. Now I don't even know that I'm so bent on being a man. I do sometimes wish my body were more like a genetic man's, but surgery is expensive and I have other plans for my money. I suppose if I were more intent on this, the Ken doll, I'd find the cash somehow. 
but transition as a state of being rather than a temporary phase seems to be working for me. I do harbor the occasional fantasy of having an uncomplicated gender. I'd be bored to tears and dressing in lingerie inside six hours, I know. <laughs> Frankly, I'd jettison all pronouns and gendered language if I could, but as with pants, it tends to upset people if you leave the house not wearing any. Speaking of pants, if you'll excuse me, I must go prepare the upcoming Pants I Have Known exhibit. Good heavens. I get to tidy. <laughs> <laughs> If you, if you don't know me, I, uh, I'm a podcaster, and my show is called Vodka O'Clock, because I'm Polish and I drink a lot. Um, um, so the piece that I'm going to read is a, a scene from a short story that I'm working on, and um, it was rejected by a comic book publisher, so I said, fuck you, I'm going to write it anyway. Uh, and, um, but the, uh, the only cool thing that I have going on right now is I'm part of a Kickstarter project that's going to be published by Northwest, and that's um, called uh, Rise, Comics Against Bullying. So um, it's active right now, so if you can support that, that would be swell. Inside their apartment in the modern Avalon Bowery building, Jordan shuffled until he collapsed on the couch. It was ivory, to contrast Ari's favorite brown leather easy chair. Ari's grieving partner slid down the back of it and pulled his legs in until he was fetal. His arms clutched a chenille throw pillow, and into it Jordan wailed in a way he had never done before at news of someone's death. He would never again wonder if he and Ari were going to last long. He would never again need to get out of bed hours before he needed to in order to get the coffee going so Ari could take it downtown to work. He would never again argue with his lover that it was time to meet their families. Jordan didn't like the arguing, but he knew Ari would never grow as a person and feel the weight lifted if he didn't eventually tell his sister and her family that he was not only gay, but in an interracial relationship with a guy nearly 20 years younger. After they had been a couple for six months, they realized what they had with each other was more serious than anything else either ever had before. Occasional hookups with strangers or friends with benefits was all either one of them had, until they met in Freddy's one night. The phone rang and chirped at regular intervals. Word had spread fast. Everyone Jordan knew was texting, calling, or emailing him condolences. Somehow a few reporters had tracked him down and left messages asking for a statement about the alleged hate crime murder in the alley behind Freddy's lounge. The only text he felt he needed to respond to was from Freddy's owner, Ty. He lied, saying he was okay. People were calling Ari's murder a hate crime. This was the village. Gay people had been openly living their lives in that neighborhood for 40 years. Then again, there have been violent crimes against Jewish people in Jewish neighborhoods, so it's not as if the bigots respected friendly boundaries. 
Jordan recalled one of Ari's stories about his childhood. His neighborhood temple had been spray-painted with hateful slurs. It was the sort of thing that everyone knew about but didn't expect it to happen to them. When it does, you feel differently about things. Hate was suddenly personal. But here it was, decades later, and Ari hadn't seen the inside of a temple in a long time. They had plenty of conversations about spirituality and divinity and what happens after you die. Jordan wanted to call out and ask Ari's spirit if he existed, what it was like, and if he knew what happened to him. He wanted the answers, and he had a feeling he wouldn't necessarily get all the cooperation needed from the police. Jordan woke up on Ari's side of the bed. He was still in last night's clubbing clothes from celebrating his birthday. Without remembering, he jolted up, thinking he was late fixing Ari's morning coffee. Then he realized it was Saturday, and that his partner had been murdered. Jordan didn't know what he could do to handle any of the things a surviving spouse would normally do. They weren't married. Ari's family didn't even know about their relationship. Now that they couldn't possibly cut Ari out of their lives, it was as good a time as any for Jordan to reach out and tell them. He didn't know if the police already had looked for Ari's sister Nora as the next of kin. The police had Ari's phone, but his laptop for work was still in the attache case on the floor. Jordan didn't know any of Ari's passwords, but it was worth checking to see if he ever had the browser save them. Fingers crossed, he whispered to himself as he booted up the machine. Ari wasn't the type to take it to the coffee shop, so he hadn't protected his user account at the operating system level. He trusted Jordan, but it was more about how Ari didn't expect anyone to find anything useful on it. Accessing the machine didn't mean much unless you really knew what you were going to dig for. The passwords for the company's software were entered each time, and all documents were stored on a cloud server. The hard drive didn't have much at all. The desktop icons were arranged by function. The first column of shortcuts Jordan didn't recognize, so they had to be for Ari's different financial applications. Then the next column had the common word processor, spreadsheet program, and browser icon. The browser's toolbar populated across the top with shortcuts to places Ari frequented, including a couple social networks and email. Jordan opened up the email application and searched the contact list for Nora's phone number first, before even thinking about all the people that needed to be notified. Her heart broke hearing the news of her brother's death. She told Jordan she was surprised at their relationship, but very happy for them. The surprise had less to do with Ari being gay and more to do with him not being the sad, middle-aged man alone in the city, living only to work she thought he was. (laughs) It was a lot of information for her to take in. Yet thinking of her brother as part of a small family of two gave Nora relief that she didn't even realize she needed. Jordan finished by saying he'd call her back with more information, and then he asked her to keep him informed of the funeral arrangements. That's when it was his turn to be moved by a smidgen of happiness. Nora suggested they worked on the memorial plans together. Since Ari wasn't much of a practicing Jewish man, they'd make it sort of jewish light and have it somewhere all of Ari's friends would feel welcome. A few tears couldn't be held back when Jordan hung up the phone. He thought Nora would be the hardest one to talk to, but she was kind and caring. Jordan made a list of all the people that weren't the ones leaving him messages. He needed to contact Ari's employer and all the credit card companies, the bank Ari used, even the utility companies. So much had been in Ari's name. Luckily, the lease had both their names on it, but without Ari's income, 
Jordan had to think about moving out quickly and finding someone to sublet. All these awful mundane things, they made the death feel impersonal. He knew most of the companies would ask if he was the spouse, which would result in another list of things Nora had to do for him as the surviving family member. The hours of phone calls were exhausting. Nothing seemed to be productive. Jordan changed gears and began working on the memorial arrangements, but he didn't even know if the coroner's office would release Ari's body. The body? What a sterile, lifeless noun, he thought. Jordan listened to all the voicemails friends had left, but he only picked up when Ty called. He needed a friendly voice and not another customer service representative telling him that Ari's affairs needed to be handled by a legitimate family. He and Ty decided to meet up at a cafe. Jordan's tastes were less fried pub food and more about salads and made-to-order sandwiches. Not that he had an appetite. Was it in the papers? Jordan asked Ty. Not the front page. Might make the headlines by Monday on TV, Ty said. Jordan, you know they'll spin this into being some kind of hate crime, but it really wasn't. You know that, right? You know it was a drug deal gone bad, right? Yeah, Ty, I know. Ari's drug use was something we thought about a few times, but it never really came between us. He seemed to keep things under control somehow. He never missed work or anything. I don't touch this shit myself. Got that out of my system when I was young. Gotta keep a clear head to run the business. And which business is that, Ty? Jordan said. What are you talking about? The club, of course. Right, Jordan said, trying to leave it at that. No, no, what are you trying to say about my business, Jordan? Nothing, just forget about it. Sounds like you got some thoughts about my bar. I want to hear this. I've been nothing but a friend to you. Jordan didn't have any kind of proof that Ty's establishment was anything other than a queer club, but he couldn't help that he had suspicions about the gambling. The drugs, however, they were easy to spot, and Ty probably took a cut of it. He didn't seem affected by the economy's slump. There weren't too many industries that could say that. Not legitimate ones, anyway. Speaking of the club, Ty, I was wondering if you could do me a favor. You insult my business and now you want a favor? I'll let that pass since your boyfriend just died at your birthday party, which I threw for you, don't forget. He saw Jordan's defeated look. What do you need? Can I see the security camera footage from that night? Ty paused. He seemed focused on adding more mayo to the sandwich. Jordan waited. Then Ty stuffed a bite in his mouth and took the time to chew for a few seconds. Why do you want to see that, he asked with the food shoved into one cheek. I don't know. Closure, I guess. It was the last place Ari was. I want to see what went down. Ty swallowed and took a gulp of his soda. There's no camera in that alley. But you had inside cameras put up a few years ago after Mullane's bar had trouble. I just want to see who might have been around Ari in his final moments. You get that, right? Someone might have seen him in that alley and don't want to talk to the cops. They might be willing to talk to me. All right, Ty said. I'll pay for the lunch you didn't eat and we'll head over to Freddy's. I'll box it up and take it home. I just can't eat right now, Jordan said. Sorry, pal. Let's go. Creator of 
Jesus Loves Lesbians 2, which are over there. Thanks, boys. And um, I'm going to read a couple pieces I wrote for tonight. Um, I'm not reading out of my comic, and I'm not cool with the slides. So, um, to introduce my first piece, uh, my little sister is gay, and she married her wife uh, four years ago. It was amazing. And I love her. We're very close, but we have an older sister that didn't come to the wedding. Kind of broke everybody's heart, so I wrote a piece. Okay. Thanks. Oh, and thank you guys so much for hosting us. It was super awesome. Okay. Um, you didn't come to the wedding, our baby sister's wedding. You didn't come to the wedding because you don't believe in gay marriage, because you're stubborn, because you couldn't let yourself give in. And she invited you, even though you'd been mean to her and mean to us. And the day before she told me, she was secretly hoping you would show up. And the morning of the wedding, she kept checking her phone and asking me if I thought you would show up. August 14, 2010, our sister Vanessa married my best friend Elaine, and everyone said it was beautiful. And our little sister had tears in her eyes when she spoke her vows and promises, and, and it was beautiful. What did you even do that day, I wonder? And later on, when you lost your house, Vanessa and Elaine let you and your sons stay with them when you had nowhere else to go. They opened up their home the same home you declared verboten to your sons, our nephews, three growing boys raised to believe that their aunts were living in sin. And she took you in. They took you in. And still no apology. Was taking a stand worth it? Did you win, big sister? It is up here when everybody's like, how does it work for my friends? Doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. Okay, and then a couple weeks ago, um, I wanted to kind of sit down and write about how I got to where I am or how I made it here in Brooklyn or New York City. And so this is called Influence. When your Sunday school teacher uses felt Moses and Eve and lambs for history, when every birthday and holiday meant a gift card to the local bookstore, when you stopped reading kids' books and moved on to King Tyler Irving, your mother's stash, and you helped that cute boy pass his math test and your favorite teacher caught you. When you went to church camp in the mountains, waterfalls, kayaking in the summer. When you learned your sister was arrested for shoplifting at the retail outlet. <clears throat> when your sister was busted for drinking at school, at home, at prom, on vacation. When your sister was kicked out of the house, remember she moved in with that family? Traveling to Mexico each year to cut hair, build churches, preach the word. Your parents lost their house, almost lost you. You moved away to college, learned to cook, lost your best friend, but she was kind of a bitch. You said goodbye to the Christian boyfriend, the same one they, you, wanted you to marry. A three-month adventure in Italy. First screenplay written, way too long, but still good. When you dropped out of college to write more. Cosmo School, just like your fam, it's in your blood. Will, then John, then Tim, the birth of nephews. Three out of four grandparents dead, one left. When you kissed a girl, then dated for years. She stole you away to San Francisco. Best friends for neighbors, organic dinners. The new friends that taught you how to be green. Home from Europe and dumped at 28. 
<laughs> when your uncle died just six weeks before your best friend's mom died, unanswered prayers. Your first gay wedding is your kid's sister's. Three months in Argentina, dancing and volunteering, so fun, not always safe. A cross-country move to New York City, easier to find a job than a home. When you started a comic, turns out it's not that easy, but you learned anyhow. Holidays with different family, ice cream dates with different sexes, and that one girl who caught you by surprise but turned out to be crazy as predicted. <laughs> Searching until a church that doesn't judge. When you move to Brooklyn, hello, steep bridge. And that other girl, always crazy, but you know it, like it, even love it for two years. <laughs> Um, and then I wrote a few letters that I'm like, may or may not send. We'll see. Dear Idina Menzel, <laughs> let me start off by saying I'm a big fan. I'm such a fan that I went and saw If Then twice on Broadway. Loved it. You rocked it. And girl, whatever you're doing to maintain that healthy, shiny hair, keep it up. Lustrous. But listen, remember in Act 1 when you say that line, I don't believe in independence. It's like bisexuals, pick a side. <laughs> I know you know the line, because both times, and presumably every time, the audience guffawed and clapped and some even whistled. Now, I'm aware you didn't write this line, but you delivered it, and it hurt my feelings. It's just a joke, but why did the audience react so ecstatically? They cheered like, you tell them, Idina, like they'd all been thinking the exact same thing, <clears throat> and my cheeks warmed up. Anyway, I just wanted you to know. If you ever want to hang out, let me know. We can watch Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and I'll make apps. Love, Maria. I've got a few letters, so you guys don't need to clap. There's a couple more. Dear Nepper Fam, Nepper Fam Min, thank you for taking the time to contact me. I was slightly confused because you agreed that Jesus does love lesbians, but then you went on to tell me all the ways that he does not love lesbians. <laughs> you also clarified that you did not mean any hate or homophobia, since it is not hateful to speak about that which is wrong. <laughs> I am not entirely sure the purpose of your email, but I suppose I should be polite and thank you. By the way, feel free to like our Facebook page. <laughs> love, Jesus Loves Lesbians too. Facebook page. <laughs> Dear Jody Picoult, are you a lesbian? <laughs> I have a bet with my sister, and I would like confirmation so we can settle this once and for all. Love, Maria. Dear alcoholic, I don't know how to tell you this without sounding selfish or puritanical or self-righteous, but your drinking is wrecking me. This not knowing when you are sober or when you are buzzed or when it's been two weeks or when it's been one day is wrecking me. The promises are wrecking me. And when I go to Al-Anon, it helps. And when I pray about it, that helps. But what would really help is if you would just stop drinking. Love, me, and us. Dear M, you are one of the most important beings in my life. It's an interesting relationship because you take it for granted that our mutual love and affection will always be there, never wavering. And yet, I know the truth. Our days are numbered. And when you go, I will be devastated. No laughing. <laughs> I wish there was a way for you to understand how much I love you. 
Instead, I will keep scratching and cuddling and walking and feeding and nurturing you for as long as I can. Love, your mama. Dear lesbian neighbors, thank you so much for the barbecue invite. Before we progress, I wanted to clear something up. Yes, my girlfriend and I are happy to be proud condo owners in your charming Provincetown, Massachusetts condo complex. No, we are not lesbians. This is sometimes hard to grasp for some people. It's a little known phenomenon called bi-invisibility, but I'm sure you can wrap your brains around it with a little time and effort. By the way, I'm afraid we are not going to be joining your football league. <laughs> While we appreciate the invite, the truth is we are just not that kind of gay. <laughs> with the season. Sincerely, your neighbors in 4D. Dear Winona Ryder, where have you been my whole life? And by my whole life, I mean the last 10 years. I watched you in that Iceman movie. You nailed it, obviously. You'll always be a pixie beauty queen to me, Noni. Feel free to steal my heart, you sexy kleptomaniac. <laughs> Dear beauty, thanks for putting up with my idiosyncrasies, my quirks, me. I know we fight approximately once a week about your tendency to pile crap on top of the filing cabinet, but when you think about it, if that's the worst of our problems, I think we'll be all right. You are the sexiest girl in this room right now, and I get to take you home. That's the best. Love, me. <laughs> Thank you, guys. first graphic novel is called Jason Goes to Hollywood, but I produced this after doing Jason's strips and stories. Oh, I'm Jeff Krell, by the way. <laughs> Everyone knows me. Uh, strips and stories for over 25 years, so there's a lot of history that predates this graphic novel. We're trying to turn it into a micro-budgeted movie, and I'm going to read a scene from that movie. Um, I wanted to... Um, explain a little bit about some of the changes we needed to make to make it work as a movie. My producer and co-screenwriter said a couple of things. Uh, he wanted it uh, to have a happy ending, which my stories never do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we structured it as a boy meets boy, bo boy loses boy, boy gets boy kind of story. And in the first act, we have to fly through a lot of the history in order to make sense of the story that is Jason Goes to Hollywood and why he gets there. So let me put up a couple of slides uh, that take you through. In the 80s, Jason and his roommate, Arena, met this lesbian separatist named Portia, uh, who called herself Portia Diesel at the time. <laughs> and she becomes important because she kind of disappeared from the strip and then made a dramatic surprise reappearance in Jason Goes to Hollywood. And we had to deal with that. And then in the 90s, I think, oh, yes, then uh, Jason meets Eduardo. His real name is Ed Rosenblatt. But uh, Robin Ricketts, who's a filmmaker, has cast him in a movie that he's making and rechristens him Eduardo Rivera and throws a gala 
discovery party to introduce him, and he and Jason fall in love. Then, they actually make the movie and have a, a screening party, and uh, the movie is terrible, but Ed gets an agent as a result of it and gets whisked away to Hollywood. The agent in this story, which appeared in the 90s, was named Dan DiCercio. Now, in order to make sense of the movie, we dispensed with Dan DiCercio, decided that Portia would be his agent from the beginning, and what we're going to read now, with the help of my lovely and talented assistant, Julia, who's going to hold up that... Yeah. Now, we've never practiced this, and, and we've never met. <laughs> hold one up. Hold up Jason so the audience yeah, can see. Okay. So when I, I'm going to read the parts, and she's going to hold up the headshots so you can see who's saying what. How's that going to work? We're going to find out. <laughs> Don't be too fast. <laughs> I'll try. I'm also not an actor. So what's left? Oh, so these are... On the next, oh, and then, oh, this is the surprise. It turns out not to be a surprise in the movie because we introduced Portia early on in the uh, graphic novel, the, the reappearance, the reemergence of Portia, who now calls herself P.D. Carr, or Portia Carr. Uh, and these are the six main characters who are going to be in this scene. There's also one who was never in the comics that we invented for this scene, and you'll figure it out when we get there. It's very short. Okay, so this is the scene. Jason and Arena are scurrying around getting ready to go to Robin's screening party where he's going to introduce this movie that he's just made. Jason is the main character. He lives with Arena, his best friend. Robin, his other best friend, made the movie. Ed is his boyfriend, who's a porn star paying his way through medical school. <laughs> Portia emerges as his agent, and Billy is Ed's scene partner in the movie. Now we're ready. Jason and Arena are dressed to the nines. Arena is still fussing with her outfit in a mirror. Jason looks at the time. Hurry up, Arena. We don't want to be late. I've never been to a private screening before. Yeah, I want no... Oh, I forgot to mention. <laughs> Ed was also Arena's boyfriend in high school. Before he came out. Okay. Boo. All right. Arena says... Yeah, I want nothing more than to spend the next two hours watching my ex-boyfriend pound another man in the ass. <laughs> How do you think I feel? But Robin believes this film has real breakout potential. Oh, and did I mention there's free food? Well, what are you waiting for, Jason? Get a move on. They enter Robin's apartment. The party is in full swing. Jazz music is playing in the background. The room is awash in aging male porn distributors and gay porn aficionados. Jason and Arena enter the room. Robin sweeps in, embracing Jason, pulling him into the party, leaving Arena standing. Jason, darling, so good of you to come. <clears throat> Robin, aren't you forgetting someone? Oh, silly me. I never even saw you there. Blame the light. That was Robin. <laughs> Blame the light. <laughs> That's quite all right. If I looked like you, I'd sit in the dark, too. <laughs> Robin grabs a filled champagne flute from a table and hands it to Jason. Champagne? 
Jason takes the flute. Arena snatches her own flute from the table. Why don't you mingle until the screening starts? Just show me the food. <laughs> Arena spies the spread on the far wall. She pushes her way through the crowd to reach it. Jason makes it just a few feet before he is cornered by Murray. This is the guy who we don't have a headshot for. A lecherous porn distributor who's already had a few drinks. I guess that's me. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, hot stuff, are you the fresh meat Robin Ricketts promised us tonight? Now you hold me up. <laughs> no, I'm not in the business. <laughs> I'll show you the business. The business end of my dick. <laughs> Just kidding, not really. <laughs> my name's Murray, what's yours? Jason looks somewhere, anywhere for um, salvation. A tray of hors d'oeuvres sails by. Oh, look, my favorite. Jason follows the tray away from Murray and grabs a snack before realizing that the waiter is Billy. He's wearing a black bow tie, tight black slacks and dress shoes, no shirt. Napkin? Billy? Oh, hi, Jason. Robin thought it would be a nice touch to have the stars serve the guests. An old lech pinches Billy's butt. Billy reacts before pivoting in, into a swerve, into a serve, gritting his teeth, Whoa, d'oeuvre? <laughs> the old lech takes an hors d'oeuvre and smiles creepily. Ed, too? Ed, dressed the same as Billy and working another section of the room, is similarly fending off advances. Afraid so. Meanwhile, Arena, plate in hand, is plowing her way through the spread. The centerpiece is a plate of mini weenies protruding from mini buns. Weenies. How original. <laughs> A large, pushy talent agent named Portia Carr appears, her own plate full. I know, and they're not even life-sized. Well, maybe in Robin's case. I don't want to know. You're a woman. Oh my God, so are you. I mean, I know why I'm here, I think. I know the star, and the director, and I live next door. She extends her free hand. Arena stage. Portia Carr. Are you a porn dealer, or... I'm a talent agent from the coast. I get invited to this shit all the time. I usually just throw it in the trash, but you never know. I happen to be in the area tonight, so I came. Robin takes the stage in front of the screen. Ed and Billy are standing like Oscar statues on either side of the screen. The music swells and stops. Robin clinks his champagne glass with a fork. Good evening, attenzione, welcome, I'm Robin Ricketts. Robin pauses for applause that doesn't come. Finally, Ed and Billy start the applause, others follow suit. Please, take your seats. The guests take their seats, Jason and Arena and Portia sit in the front row. The film you are about to see is special. Well, I like to think all of my films are special. But this one truly is my magnum orifice, and I mean opus. <laughs> An epic story about the healing power of love, featuring brave and vulnerable performances by the ever-popular Billy Bigstaff, <laughs> and exciting newcomer Eduardo Rivera as Dr. Love. And so, without further ado, I give you Genital Hospital. <laughs> 
They exit the stage, the lights dim, the opening credits roll. Genital Hospital, a double R Studios production written, produced, and directed by Robin Ricketts, starring Billy Big Staff and introducing Eduardo Rivera as Dr. Love. The film opens on Billy, in bed, naked, under a sheet. He sits up. He feels his forehead. It's warm. He staggers to the bathroom, opens the medicine chest, and reaches for a rectal thermometer. He grabs it and shoves it up his ass. Dissolve to, an hour later, roll the closing credits to respectful applause. The lights come up. The guests rise to their feet and resume mingling. Portia. Yeah, she's here. She's ready. Well, (laughs) that was a complete waste of talent. Portia disappears into the crowd. Billy is talking to fans and signing autographs. Ed is nowhere to be found. Robin approaches Jason, excited. Well, what did you think? Be brutally honest. I don't know, Robin. It's hard for me to be objective. Here she is. I've seen better film on teeth. (laughs) I wasn't asking you. I just want to find Ed and go home. I need to find him, too. I want to start work right away on the sequel. I'm thinking of calling it Intensive Care. What do you think? How about bedpans and broomsticks? (laughs) This could be the start of a whole new franchise. Eduardo will be famous. I'll be rich. Portia appears, Ed in tow. Not so fast, twinkle toes. Who are you? Portia Carr, Eduardo Rivera's agent. Are you aware that my client never signed a contract to appear in your film? Of course you are. We had a gentleman's agreement. Well, that's too bad, because I'm no gentleman. She's barely a lady. Portia. I heard that. A crowd starts to gather around them. Look, Miss Carr, I'm sure we can come to terms, and while we're at it, let's lock down a three-picture deal for your client. No dice. Portia whips out a sheaf of papers and shoves it at Robin. This is an injunction. Ever seen one? Don't bother to read it. I'll tell you what it says. It says you can't exhibit genital hospital anywhere. Not in theaters, not in stores, not on the internet, not on a bedsheet in your backyard. As far as the world is concerned, genital hospital doesn't exist. To suggest otherwise would prove injurious to my client. But at least I kept my legs. See you.